this week on the Backtable podcast. There's really been kind of an explosion of studies in the head and neck cancer field. You know, it's hard because, you know, a lot of development really has to happen at the academic level because there's really no financial incentive for companies to get involved in repurposing a drug that costs $4 at Walmart. So it's really those of us really doing science and often in the academic setting that stumble upon these things and try to develop them further with the goal of, number one, helping our patients in a way that's affordable and cost-effective. And number two, basically getting some insights into how these things work, which helps us understand the disease better. And you know, in terms of the cost-effectiveness, it's never been more important as the cost of healthcare tends to skyrocket. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. My name is Gopi Shaw, and I'm a pediatric ENT. I have a very special guest today. I have Dr. Nicole Schmidt. She is an associate professor in the Department of Otolaryngology at Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. Her clinical and research work is focused on head and neck surgical oncology and novel therapeutic combinations. Dr. Schmidt is here today to talk to us about drug repurposing and head and neck cancer. Welcome to the show, Nikki. How are you? Thank you so much for having me, Gopi. I'm delighted to be here. Can you first tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice? Sure. So I'm a, a head and neck surgeon scientist, and I have the really the privilege of having my dream job, which consists of about one third head and neck surgery and, and in terms of clinic and, and operating room time and one third being involved in clinical trials and one third running a lab and doing translational research, which a lot of people refer to as uh, bench to bedside, but we like to go the other direction as well. It's a lot of fun and it really keeps me, keeps me busy. That's awesome. Um, I love that you can describe it as your dream job too. <laughs> That's amazing. So today we're going to talk about drug repurposing and head and neck cancer. Can you tell us what exact, what is drug repurposing? That's a really good question, Gopi, and I think there's renewed interest in it. So drug repurposing, in simple terms, is really just using a drug that's created or developed for one purpose for an entirely different purpose for which it either was never intended or isn't FDA approved or really something unexpected and new. And so has this been something that's new in the last like five years or is drug repurposing something that's kind of been around for you know a couple of decades and now we're seeing the application in head and neck cancer? Good question. So it's been around for ages, really, but it, in applying to different fields. But there's really been kind of an explosion of studies in the head and neck cancer field. You know, it's hard because, you know, a lot of development really has to happen at the academic level because there's really no financial incentive for companies to get involved and repurposing a drug that costs $4 at Walmart. So it's really those of us really doing science and often in the academic setting that stumble upon these things and try to develop them further with the goal of, number one, helping our patients in a way that's affordable and cost-effective. And number two, basically getting some insights into how these things work, which helps us understand the disease better. And you know, in terms of the cost-effectiveness, it's never been more important as the cost of healthcare tends to skyrocket. Yeah. And so stumbling upon these drugs, are these sort of like incidental findings? So for example, a blood pressure medication, is this something that, oh, I've seen a lot of my patients that are on this specific blood pressure medications have an easier time with this chemo. Is it something that, you know, you kind of have, you find like you notice in your practice or how does it kind of come to fruition? Like, hey, this is actually 
something I use for blood pressure, but it actually works for radiation side effects in my head neck cancer patient. Is that sort of, A, is that sort of what we're talking about? And B, how do you stumble upon that connection? It's really all of the above. Um, Some of it is, it's really, I would say, three different ways. Number one, it's somewhat hypothesis driven. In other words, you say, okay, I know that mTOR signaling and PI3 kinase mutations are mechanistic and had that cancer. So let me, you know, and it turns out that NSAIDs and rapamycin and metformin are actually drugs that target that pathway too. So let's try it. So that's a lot of it has come by, but just decades of having a good understanding of the disease that help us realize that we have drugs already on the table that we can use for these things. Number two is really sort of exploratory. In other words, you know, there are studies that say, if I want to find out who's responding to immunotherapy, for example, for a variety of cancers, Let's look at what other concomitant medications these patients are taking. So there have been a series of really large retrospective database studies saying, okay, let's see if proton pump inhibitors and statins and uh, hypertension drugs, and there's just a variety of drugs that are common. And so you end up with the statistical power to really see if those drugs are making a difference. And that's how a lot of this has come about. And the third is exactly what you're describing. The patient, you, you see something anecdotally that's just kind of a light bulb goes on. For, I'll give you an example of that. I had a patient who cured herself of her own nasal squamous cell carcinoma with fruit. <laughs> and I know that sounds crazy. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm trying. <laughs> it's not a drug at all. It's not drug repurposing. But, uh, but basically, she, um, she asked me how to be healthier. And so, you know, because she had ended up with this tremendous squamous cell that went down to the, the bone and needed a partial rhinectomy. And, and she asked me for advice on how to have a healthier diet. And I said, well, you know, more fruits and vegetables, less meat and processed foods are good for everyone. And so three weeks later, she came back for surgery and essentially the tumor had disappeared. And she uh, confided that she had been subsisting largely on fruit and one of which was blueberries. So, you know, out of all the fruits that she was eating, that one was a known superfood. And so we actually, in our labs, started to study blueberry extract as a therapeutic for cancer. Now we're studying it as a really a preventive agent. So, and it works, by the way. So publication forthcoming, but not a drug at all, but essentially something that somebody had done with their either their you know medication or lifestyle that we notice have a tremendous impact in that maybe just that one case, and it leads to a series of studies that we can validate, bring to the bench, and then hopefully back to the to the bedside. So specific to head neck cancer, what are some of the drugs that are being repurposed? Good question. So it's really a, like I would say there are probably many that I don't know about. But in terms of the one that really sort of making a splash right now, I would I would say NSAIDs. And drugs that block the mTOR pathway, um, specifically metformin, which, as you may know, is used for diabetes, rapamycin, which is used as a chemotherapy drug for other cancers, and uh, statin drugs. How do they work? Is there a relationship between the chronic medical condition that they were taking this medicine for and the cancer in some, like, how does the, how does the pathway, how does it work? Why does it, why is that relationship there? I would say in some situations we know or have some good idea and some situations we don't. And it really depends on what you were alluding to earlier and how we stumbled upon these things. And when we stumble upon these things sort of incidentally, we often don't know. And we're sort of scratching our heads trying to figure that out. And I I would say that is to some degree the case with statin drugs, although what we're finding is there are big epidemiologic retrospective studies showing that if you're taking a statin drug at diagnosis of head and neck cancer, that you have a better survival outcome. And you know, we did a study, at least in our lab, that it also seems to promote the responses to immunotherapy. So I think we're starting to to find that there are a couple specific mechanisms for statin drugs that we can identify, but we're sort of working backwards in this case. 
in other cases, for example, you know, rapamycin and metformin, in those situations, we can, sort of came upon those because they specifically inhibited pathways that we already know about. I mean, decades of work from a lot of great scientists and uh, surgeon scientists showing that PI3 kinase and mTOR signaling are really important for the pathogenesis of head and neck cancer. And so those drugs specifically inhibit those pathways, um, not only for treating cancer, but for also for preventing pre-malignant progression into cancer. So, and we're going to kind of get into um, how it's being used, but when you have a new patient um, who's not on, let's say, a statin or not on metformin, and they don't have a history of hyperlipidemia or diabetes, do you go ahead and start them on these medications now after they have a diagnosis of head and neck cancer? And I realize majority of head and neck cancers are squamous cell, but um, are we using this in other cancers of the head and neck too? Yeah, so all really good questions. So in terms of whether I put everybody on a, a statin the minute I meet them, um, I haven't resorted to that yet. But I know a lot of centers, based on our work showing that it prevents this platinum-induced hearing loss, have started um, using off-label statins just as a preventive mechanism because it really seems to drop the incidence of hearing loss in half. And it's pretty well tolerated. So often I, I've, I've seen a lot of people start to use that just to see if, if it can prevent that. I haven't started putting everybody on some of these drugs, but you know, you see sometimes the cases that really haunt us as head and neck surgeons are the pre-malignant lesions where it's high-grade dysplasia and you're really worried that it's going to turn into a carcinoma, but it hasn't yet. And so you don't want to offer them aggressive surgery or radiation or chemotherapy, but at the same time, you want to do something and you sort of end up wringing your hands and doing lots of visits and biopsies. So in that situation, I've, I've advocated for patients to take aspirin or other NSAIDs, and I've advocated for patients to eat more blueberries because <laughs> I really feel like those things, the risk-benefit ratio is really in our favor, you know, and I feel like at least that gives me some indication that we can do something to try and slow things down. Do we use this mostly for squamous cell carcinomas of the head and neck? Oh, yeah. Thanks for reminding me. No, no. I shouldn't be clustering my question. Uh, no, it's good. <laughs> and, and I think the answer to that is, is yes, mainly because uh, we really don't know what the role of these for other things. You know, things like salivary cancers and thyroid cancer, very different biology. It's it's a lot more indolent. And so, you know, at some point, yes, we absolutely need to see how those drugs affect those different histologies. And I think that that's a, a completely, almost completely untouched field at this point. And you'd mentioned cisplatin-induced hearing loss as a reason. Can you tell us, expand a little bit on how drug repurposing is used in head and neck cancer? What's it for? Good question. So it really, I would say, has two purposes. Number one, enhancing survival, enhancing responses to therapy. And number two, decreasing the toxicity. So in other words, you could say it, it increases the therapeutic index. You know, So that's really what we want is to improve survival and decrease toxicity, especially for our HPV-positive patients who are often young and of decades to live and, and dealing with these toxicities. So that's really what it is. We've used it in the setting of, at least experimentally um, and in clinical trial settings, trying to enhance survival and now decrease toxicities either beforehand, giving, for example, patients a torvastatin before they have cisplatin chemotherapy in order and attempt to mitigate the hearing loss that they would otherwise have. And we just are about to open a clinical trial uh, with that, and that's going to be randomized with placebo. And then there's also a very fascinating phase two study of the Pravacure trial where a group in France actually gave pravastatin a year later after patients had developed radiation fibrosis. And they found that it actually reversed a significant amount of radiation fibrosis, which I thought was just incredible. So really, there are different junctures where you can use this, you know, upon diagnosis, before and during therapy, or even after therapy to really 
improve on that therapeutic index. Uh, you said that the example in France was uh, decreasing radiation fibrosis. So it helps decrease the toxicities of chemotherapy and radiation. Absolutely. As well as responsiveness of treatment for chemotherapy and radiation as well. Absolutely. Wow. So it's really okay. that holy grail we've been looking for. You know, I've been interested in cisplatin toxicity for many years, both what it does to the hearing and peripheral neuropathy and all the other problems that it causes. And um, it's always been beyond my wildest dreams that I would find something that not only mitigates those toxicities, but actually helps increase survival. And I think we may be onto something here and we, we still have so much more to learn at this point. Now, you mentioned the blueberries of your patient and decreasing the tumor. Maybe it's gone. Do these medications shrink tumor size as well? If you ever do them pre-op, pre-resection for a couple of weeks, is, is that being studied or is there any findings on that? I, and I don't think that's a good question. We haven't tried that yet. There is this you know, blossoming field of neoadjuvant immunotherapy. And we know that we give immunotherapy before surgery, for example, and a majority of patients, we're seeing that the tumor does decrease and is pathologically downstage. We haven't tried, to my knowledge, too many of these repurposed drugs, with the exception of one that hasn't been tested yet in head, and cancer, head and neck cancer, but in other cancers. And actually, our former dean here at Emory, Vikasa Kotme, actually found that in an animal study, and then, and then is now trying it in human studies of other cancers, that Ketorolac, as you know, is an NSAID that we often use for pain and other things. If you give that prior to surgery, that it enhances survival, at least in animal models. And what he found was that surgery is quite immunosuppressive. There are a lot of prostaglandins and COX-2 and a lot of things that actually are really good for wound healing and really bad for fighting cancer. And so if you actually give Ketorolac before surgery, it enhances the tumor control, uh, which I think is really incredible. So that, to my knowledge, is the only one that's really been tried in that situation. We haven't really yeah. tried it yet, but there, again, there's so much th more things we need to learn. And as we're finding repurposed drugs that enhance the responses to immunotherapy, I can definitely see in the next five years adding those uh, additional drugs to the immunotherapy that's been used in the neoadjuvant setting prior to surgery. You've done a lot of research specific to statins. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're finding in your lab? Yeah, so we uh, really stumbled upon this. Primarily, I was looking at studies to justify giving patients statins to decrease the toxicities of their treatment. And while doing so, really stumbled upon some interesting studies, including the epidemiologic studies I mentioned earlier, wherein patients uh, retrospectively, if they're on a statin at the time of diagnosis, they have better survival. And I started really thinking about why that is. And uh, in looking at the literature, what we're finding is that ma manipulation of cholesterol in a variety of ways, for example, statin drugs or blocking other cholesterol synthesis pathways, which I won't get lost in the weeds in that today, can actually enhance the responsiveness of T lymphocytes to the cancer. So in other words, the T lymphocytes have a lot of problems by the time they reach the tumor, and we can reverse some of those problems by manipulating the amount of cholesterol. And in our lab right now, what we're looking at is how the T cell receptor, which is actually responsible for recognizing a cell that is infected or transformed into cancer, is that T cell receptor signaling is improved if you decrease the cellular level of cholesterol. And statins are one way of doing that. So, you know, in our study so far that we've published in the lab, we use really a, a clinically relevant dose of oral statin drug daily in a mouse to mimic the clinical situation that we dramatically enhance the response to immune therapy. And so that's really where we're going now is trying to get a better grip on that mechanism and exactly how the statins affect T lymphocyte function. Wow. Okay. Just to, because you've, you're, you're said it so, just so that I'm clear. Um, so manipulating the amount of cholesterol 
can make the T cell receptor more sensitive to cancer cells. That's absolutely. That's it in a nutshell. Yes. Wow. Absolutely. And that's what we're finding. And we're we're doing some really exciting experiments with my collaborator Chen Zhu at Georgia Tech, uh, who's basically a biomedical engineer, and he's helping us really do some assays to to look at how well that TCR T cell receptor is actually working. So it's really exciting collaboration. And I hope that we'll learn a lot more about that in the future. And the dose you said would be the typical dose that we normally use anyways for lowering cholesterol. Like it's not like 10 times the dose. It's not like, you know, oh, we only need to use 10%. You're using just your standard doses that we're already comfortable using for cholesterol. Absolutely. So it's a little bit tricky because there's not a lot of pharmacologic data on how statins are processed in mice versus humans. And we you know, when we notice this retrospectively in humans, then we go back to mice to learn as much as we can. And then we hope to go again back to a clinical trial at some point. But and it actually does take quite a bit more drug to lower the lipid and uh, the serum in mice than it does in humans. In other words, the dose I'm using in mice actually is in many ways 10 times higher than what we would use in a human, but it lowers the serum cholesterol by about the same amount. Okay. You had mentioned that drug repurposing works better in HPV positive patients that have like oral pharyngeal cancer that is HPV positive. Tell me the role of HPV and why it may or may not be more sensitive to the drug repurposing. Do we know? And are there other factors that kind of make it work better for you if you have those? Well, really, I think there there are some where some situations where it does work better, but I often think that in many ways our, our motivation is to do better because we're really working working on repurposing drugs for decreasing the toxicity. And those are the patients that often are younger and often have to live with their toxicities for several decades afterwards. So I think it's more of a motivation question in many ways. But there are some situations where we do think it works better. In other words, the HPV-positive patients often have PIK3CA mutations, and therefore they're the ones really who uh, may respond well to NSAIDs, for example. And then are there side effects that we're like aware of from drug uh, repurposing or it, would it just be the same side effects that I would have it if I took a cholesterol medication anyways? I think it is more of the latter, Gopi. I think since a lot of our patients actually are taking these drugs, I mean, most of the drugs we're talking about are drugs that our patients take. And in fact, it turns out that anywhere from 25 to 40 percent of our patients are already taking a statin. And as it turns out, 50% of them should be because a lot of them have cardiovascular risk factors, but may not be on the statin already. And so what we have is a lot of safety data showing that these are well tolerated because our patients are taking them anyway. And so when we do studies looking at, okay, how many of our patients are taking NSAIDs frequently? And we know that those are well tolerated. So, um, So I think that's giving us some clues, the fact that a lot of our patients are taking these drugs anyway. In terms of um, implementation, when you go to a tumor board now, are you like, hey, you know, this person is on a statin or has not started a statin, you know, it may be a good idea for us to go ahead and start it. Like, how's the conversation go in tumor board? And is this already part of the conversation when you're presenting these patients? That's another good question, Gopi. I think right now, at least in our tumor board, we mostly bring this up when it comes to pre-malignant lesions. You know, in other words, we see somebody Again, like I said, with a high-grade dysplasia that's multifocal and we don't want to offer them, you know, really morbid treatment as we would if it was a, a carcinoma. And so that's where we start to think about things like NSAIDs or blueberry extract or things that really have little harm and may help. But we haven't actually added them in to that situation where we're treating patients 
for their cancers, along with chemotherapy and radiation and, and um, with surgery. Although there are some emerging data that to su suggest that some of these repurposed drugs do actually enhance those therapies. So I think that conversation will change in the next five to 10 years, but I don't think we're there yet. Yeah. And with this research, is there oncology that also partakes in the research that you're doing? Who, radiation oncologists, like, is it field specific or is it like, this is part of the broader field of cancer period. And um, this research is emerging with all the specialties together. I really think it's the latter. Uh, I think in head and neck cancer and, and other cancers, as you mentioned, beyond. And so the research to date has really come from a variety of disciplines. You know, the, the Pravacure study I mentioned with the radiation fibrosis, that is really radiation oncology driven. And it was really my colleague, Bill Stokes in radiation oncology that showed me that study. And he, he often will use pravastatin for patients that have really bad radiation fibrosis. And so this is really a very collaborative and multidisciplinary effort. And then in terms of, let's say, the patient that does come in with a pre-malignant lesion, do you sit down and, you know, have you started offering a little bit some of this in your practice? And, you know, hey, this is off-label, if they're not already on it, or let's say they are already on it, do you increase the dose? How does that conversation go with, with your patients? Uh, well, good question. Right now, a lot of it is good timing because we have some clinical trials open for this. And so there is now a phase two trial of metformin for patients who have pre-malignant lesions uh, and a smoking history. And so we've uh, that study is, is multi-site, and we are fortunate to be one of the sites that recently opened it. And I think uh, based on some very promising phase one data where the histology approves or often uh, resolves, uh, we're very excited to have that trial open. And so we're looking for patients uh, that will qualify for that. Um, and then, you know, for patients that don't have a smoking history or patients who have pregmalignant lesions, for example, in the larynx, if we don't have a clinical trial, then we often do mention things that we've had success with in the past. And at Emory, I'm, I'm fortunate that a lot of my colleagues in medical oncology have been doing these types of trials for years. And had some really good results with green tea extract, either alone or in combination with erlotinib, which is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor blocking EGFR that by itself doesn't do a whole lot for head and neck cancer. So um, that actually has gone all the way to the phase three concept stage, you know, in a cooperative group setting. And so hopefully that will be opened up at a variety of institutions nationwide in the near future. But it's an exciting time where we're making some progress finally in premillennial lesions and how to use different things, repurpose drugs and supplements to get a handle on those. Have there been uh, research in terms of cost benefits uh, as of yet with some of the, the data that we're finding? To my knowledge, no, but I think you can, you sort of start to imagine that something that costs $4 a month at Walmart or anywhere is really appealing. You know, I think that Immunotherapy is, is highly sophisticated. It's also very expensive. I mean, the typical cost of a dose of PD-1 inhibitor is about $15,000. When you're talking about doing that every three to six weeks, you really want to rein in the cost. And so a lot of the industry-sponsored trials have been adding additional sophisticated immunotherapy drugs to that mixture. But if we can add lovastatin or something like that, which is you know highly affordable, I think we stand to gain as a society, not only here in terms of raining down our, our healthcare costs in the United States, but also in many countries where they don't have the same budget for these types of things. Nikki, can you tell us what pleiotrophic, the pleiotrophic effect means? When I was kind of looking up and preparing for this podcast, that term kept coming up and I don't, you know, and it'd be great to have a definition for it. Absolutely. So we use statins as an example and the pleiotrophic effects are statins are those that essentially don't involve cholesterol. So it's been known for a number of years that uh, statins can have anti-inflammatory and neuroprotective effects outside of their 
cholesterol effects. And so that, for example, is, is something we've looked at. And I think what we're learning is that both the pleiotropic effects and the on-target cholesterol inhibiting effects of statins are actually important for head and neck cancer. But sometimes the drugs work in ways that, that they weren't supposed to. And that's really, really exciting. We talked a little bit about HPV. And I, you'd mentioned that there was a trial with smokers. Are these drugs, do we know if they're more or less effective for patients that have had a history of smoking or drinking or any relationship with some of those risk factors for our head and neck cancer patients? Uh, not that, that I'm aware of yet. I do think we need to go look back and see. I suspect maybe some of the immune enhancing drugs may have a better effect in HPV positive patients because they have a slight increased chance of responding to immunotherapy. So there may be something there in terms of any of the repurposed drugs like statins, for example, that we think are affecting the immune system. But, but really, we just need a lot more research to know for sure. And Nikki, as we start to sort of round it out, what other final pearls regarding this topic do you want to share with our listeners? Well, I, I guess I would say that I would encourage everybody to kind of keep your eyes open. Because again, as you mentioned, a lot of these things were identified anecdotally. And somebody has something happened that you can't explain, and it might be some lifestyle change or a drug that they're taking. And I think uh, let's just keep our eyes open and see what we can learn from our patients. And that may be something that initially we don't understand, but it may add a lot of mechanistic insights and a lot of really interesting, affordable ways to treat patients going forward. Thank you, Nikki, for coming on the show. I learned a ton. If anybody has any questions for you, are you on any social media or they can always uh, reach out to us and we can also uh, give their message or questions to you as well. Absolutely. So my uh, Twitter is at Nikki Schmidt, MD, and I'd be happy to answer any questions by email or, you know, hope to interact with some people at some upcoming meetings. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess and Yvonne Orvijinsky. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.